0: everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 19, Pyrrhus of Ipirus, Part 2. Last time, we looked at the early career of Pyrrhus, King of Ipirus, and how he rose from being an exiled fugitive to a foreign adventurer to ruler of his father's kingdom. If you haven't yet listened to Part 1 about Pyrrhus's early life, I'd recommend you pause here and go back so that you can better follow today's narrative. After receiving a plea for aid from the Greek city of Tarentum to help get them out of the mess they have made with Rome, Pyrrhus outfitted an impressive expedition to aid his fellow Greeks in southern Italy. Today, we pick up where we left Pyrrhus last, hauling himself ashore after swimming from his ships in the middle of a storm. Exhausted and soaking wet, Pyrrhus, always optimistic, placed himself at the head of a small band of troops who had managed to join him and confidently marched towards Tarentum. You can see the location of Tarentum on the map using the link in the notes in the description. Arriving in Tarentum, Pyrrhus was greeted with enthusiasm by the Tarentines, who praised him as the savior of the Western Greeks from the Roman yoke. By contrast, Pyrrhus felt less enthusiastic with the state of the Tarentines. He found them devoted to pleasure and luxurious living, rendering them, in the words of Plutarch, incapable either of saving others or being saved themselves. To add insult to injury, Pyrrhus soon discovered that, while he was supposed to face the full fury of the Roman war machine, the Tarentines, who had caused all this trouble in the first place, wanted to remain comfortably at home doing their favorite activities, bathing and feasting. Understandably irritated by his decadent allies, Pyrrhus developed other ideas. Biding his time until the remainder of his army landed in Tarentum, Pyrrhus, as soon as reinforcements arrived, instituted martial law to whip the Tarentines into shape. He closed down gymnasiums and banned all festivals, revels, and drinking parties, summoning the citizens to arms and telling them, in essence, that if they wanted to have a chance at defeating the Romans, They would have to get their act together. Instead, many of the Tarentines, flustered by this Iperote party-pooper, left the city in a huff, saying that such a manner of living was worse than slavery. Those who remained faced a very different lifestyle than that which they were accustomed to, for though they thought they had called Pyrrhus over as their servant, they quickly found out that they had received a master instead. Having confiscated the Tarentines' baths and wine, Pyrrhus next turned his attention northward towards Lucania, where the Roman consul Lavinius was plundering the Greek countryside at the head of a great consular army. Marching north, Pyrrhus met the Romans at the river Cirrus near the town of Heraclea. Estimates of the number of Romans and Greeks involved vary greatly, but a reasonable estimate is probably 35,500 men for Pyrrhus and 45,500 men for the Romans. Before battle commenced, Pyrrhus sent a delegation offering to act as arbiter between the Romans and the Italian Greeks in order to settle the dispute diplomatically the Roman commander responded haughtily that they neither accepted Pyrrhus as an arbiter nor feared him as an enemy. Following this exchange, Pyrrhus, while scouting the Roman camp, expressed astonishment at how well organized and well disciplined the Roman army appeared, stating to his friends that the order of these barbarians is not at all barbarian in character. We will presently see what they can do. Had he known, Pyrrhus would have had even more of a reason to be curious on the eve of what became known as the Battle of Heraclea, for this battle would be the first time that the two legendary fighting formations of the ancient world, the Roman Legion and the Greek Phalanx, would clash in open warfare. Pyrrhus chose to take up his position on the left bank of the river Cirrus, hoping that the Romans would be disordered by the river crossing, and that he could fall on them in the same way Timoleon had fallen upon the Carthaginians at the Battle of the Cremissus. To his surprise, the Romans advanced through the river in perfect order with shields raised and drove off the light infantry Pyrrhus had ordered to guard the bank. Startled by this audacious attack from those he considered barbarians, Pyrrhus ordered his officers to form the infantry into their phalanx for a counterattack. While his phalanx was forming, Pyrrhus, clad in magnificent armor, placed himself at the front of his cavalry, and true to his heroic reputation as a soldier, personally led a thundering charge against the vanguard of the Roman line. The Greek infantry soon arrived and a furious conflict ensued as the sarissas of the Iperote phalanx clashed with the swords and shields of the Roman legion. Pyrrhus remained in the thick of the fighting, even after his horse was killed under him. At one point, he exchanged armor with one of his friends, Megacles, perhaps as a precaution to make himself less conspicuous in the fight. This nearly proved disastrous, though, for when Megacles was surrounded and killed in the melee, the Greeks thought that Pyrrhus had fallen and began to waver. Pyrrhus barely saved the situation by riding up and down the lines bareheaded to prove he was still alive, rallying his wavering troops to recommence the fight. After this, the fighting became even fiercer. In the words of historian Theodore Alliot Dodge, Seven times the Roman charge broke on the phalangeal masses. Seven times the vaunted phalanx essayed vainly to crush the elastic structure of the legion. It was metal against rubber. The one could not break the other, nor could either tear its foe asunder. Finally, Pyrrhus, seeing that his phalanx could not make any headway against the stubborn Romans, called up his war elephants from his reserve. These lumbering beasts, appearing suddenly on the battlefield from behind a group of hills, caused terror throughout the Roman ranks, since they had never seen such massive creatures before. The elephants threw the Roman cavalry in disorder, and they quickly broke and fled. Seizing his chance, Pyrrhus launched his Thessalian cavalry, famed horsemen from the Greek city-state of Thessaly against the Roman infantry, driving them back into the river in defeat. In all, the Romans lost somewhere between 7,000 to 15,000 men, while Pyrrhus suffered 4,000 to 13,000 in casualties. However, even if Pyrrhus only lost 4,000 men, these constituted the elite of his forces including several of his best officers and friends, a sore blow to his army. Nonetheless, Pyrrhus had gained a great and decisive victory over the Romans, both by the courage of his men and his skillful use of his war elephants. Feeling himself in a position of strength after his victory, Pyrrhus plundered the country to within 37 miles of Rome, Many of the surrounding cities, which had remained neutral, now submitted to Pyrrhus, giving him control over a large swath of southern Italy. Thinking that the Romans would now be ready to negotiate, Pyrrhus sent his philosopher friend Sinaeus as an envoy to the Roman Senate to offer peace terms. Simultaneously, he offered the defeated Romans the opportunity to take service in his army a customary Greek practice towards prisoners following a defeat. Since most Greek troops at this period served as mercenaries, captured soldiers would often switch sides to join the victor, since they had no specific loyalty to their former masters. It must have served as a shock to Pyrrhus when not one of the several thousand prisoners he had captured took him up on his generous offer instead preferring captivity to serving in the army of an enemy of Rome. In Rome, Sinaeus at first had greater success than Pyrrhus in convincing the Romans what was in their own best interest. Famed for his eloquence, Sinaeus managed to persuade a substantial number of senators to vote for a truce or even a peace treaty. However, His plans were upset when Appius Claudius Caicus, an elderly war hero from past years, appeared at the senate house carried by his slaves. Although blind and weak in his old age, he nevertheless delivered a scathing speech which rebuked the senators for desiring peace with Pyrrhus and urged them to continue the war. Stung by the old man's words, the senate in the words of historian Richard Miles, at the last minute showed the resilience for which it would become famous, voting to reject Pyrrhus' offers of peace and enroll the citizens into new legions to face him. As we remember from last episode, Sinaeus had previously tried to talk Pyrrhus out of invading Italy. Now, as he watched the Roman citizens flock to enlist in the legions, Sinaeus grew alarmed that maybe the Iperodes had bitten off more than they could chew. Later, when he returned to Pyrrhus, he warned that they were fighting against a hydra, a beast which grew two new heads after one was cut off. Undeterred by his philosopher's gloomy foreboding, Pyrrhus spent the winter preparing for a new campaign in the spring of 279 B.C. Before the campaign could get underway, the Romans received an unexpected offer from Pyrrhus' personal physician, who promised to poison the king and end the war in exchange for a cash payment. Disdaining to take advantage of such a dishonorable opportunity, the Romans instead sent a warning to Pyrrhus about his physician's disloyalty. In response to this, Pyrrhus, out of courtesy, released all the Roman prisoners he had taken at Heraclea, but the Romans, always eager to one-up their competitors, in turn released all the Tarentine and Samnite captives they had captured during the war. Despite this exchange of courtesies, the war continued into the spring of 279 BC. The two armies met at the town of Ascalum. Pyrrhus commanded approximately 70,000 men made up of Iperotes, Greeks, and Italian tribes such as the Lucanians, Samnites, and Brutians, while the Romans fielded 70,000 men made up of Roman citizens and local Latin allies. Like a reenactment of Heraclea, the two armies camped on either side of a river, and the Romans crossed over to attack Pyrrhus. This time, though, Pyrrhus struggled to combat them since the ground was swampy and wooded, making it difficult for him to deploy his elephants and cavalry. The following day, however, Pyrrhus occupied the swampy ground with some light troops and modified the traditional phalanx formation by interspersing units of Italian auxiliaries to mimic the flexibility of the Roman legion. He also managed to bring his elephants up closer to the battlefield in order to bring them to bear on the Roman line. Meanwhile, the Romans made their own adjustments and deployed special wagons they had developed to counter Pyrrhus' elephants. These were made up of a motley combination of improvised materials, bristling with iron spikes, long poles, and men who were supposed to throw grappling hooks which had been lit on fire, onto the elephants' faces and trunks. Unfortunately for the Romans, when battle rejoined on the second day, they found that, despite their ingenious idea, the wagons became bogged down in the mud before they could reach the elephants, rendering them ineffective. Still, the Romans fought with dogged determination throwing themselves with reckless abandon upon the Greek pikes. Equally brave, Pyrrhus drove back these Roman advances by his own heroic efforts, inspiring his men to continue the contest. Even so, defeat seemed certain when his Italian allies broke under the pressure from the Roman line, which now threatened to envelop the flank of the Iperot phalanx. But once again, Pyrrhus's elephants came to the rescue. Charging down on the Roman cavalry, the elephants drove the terrified horses from the field. With one last effort, Pyrrhus led his Iperodes to drive the Romans back across the river, winning the field. The losses on both sides were enormous. The historian Dionysus of Halicarnassus puts the dead for both sides at 15,000, while other historians put the Roman loss at 6,000, and Pyrrhus' own records indicates he lost 3,550 killed. After these two great battles, Pyrrhus had lost most of his best officers and closest friends, and in the fighting at Asculum, the king himself had been seriously wounded as he surveyed the mournful field on the following day. One of his aides congratulated him on the victory. Pyrrhus responded cynically, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. Pyrrhus's statement after the Battle of Asculum has famously given rise to the phrase Pyrrhic victory, a term which describes a technical victory which cost so much that it might as well have been a defeat. The term was especially apt when used to describe the aftermath of the Battle of Asculum, for though Pyrrhus had driven the Romans off with great slaughter and held the field, his own losses in the two campaigns had been so immense that another such costly victory would probably, in truth, be his last. Most of his veteran soldiers and officers had perished, and it would be a long time before he could receive reinforcements from Iparus. To make matters worse, his allies in Italy now gave lukewarm responses towards his requests for aid, declining to join forces with him and instead seeking to remain neutral. Behind all these troubles loomed Rome herself who, in the words of Plutarch, sent forth new armies like a fountain continually flowing out of the city, despite the heavy casualties she had suffered in the two hard-fought battles. Having seen his performance in the battles of Heraclea and Asculum, it is indisputable that Pyrrhus was a brave commander. However, he had a key fault which often rendered his successes moot and that was the fact that he had the ancient equivalent of ADD. Whenever the going got tough or he became bored, Pyrrhus would jump at any new fresh opportunity that came across his plate. In 278 BC, having grown disillusioned with the Italian campaign, Pyrrhus unexpectedly received two enticing opportunities at once. The first was the news that the crown of Macedonia was now up for grabs, since the Macedonian king, Ptolemy Saranus, had recently died in battle with the Celts. As we remember from episode 15, the Celts had invaded Greece in 279 BC under their chieftain Brennus and destroyed the Macedonian army in battle before being turned back by a coalition of Greek city-states at Delphi. As intriguing as regaining the kingdom of Macedonia was, the second offer proved to be even more tempting. The second offer was a delegation which arrived from a group of Sicilian city-states headed by Syracuse. Unsurprisingly, after Agathocles' death, Syracuse fell into decades of civil strife consisting of an endless menagerie of petty tyrants, local demagogues, and rioting mobs. At the moment, two feuding oligarchs had turned the city into a war zone, but had reached a stalemate. To complicate matters, the Carthaginians had once again besieged Syracuse by land and sea in an attempt to contain the madness. Now, the Syracusans asked for Pyrrhus to come and rescue them from the Carthaginians and conquer all of Sicily for the Western Greeks. Plutarch says that after he had heard the two offers, Pyrrhus grumbled at fortune for sending him two such great opportunities at once. Despite this regal complaint, in the end, Pyrrhus decided on the Sicilian expedition, which was made all the more enticing since he had strong connections to Syracuse through his second wife, Lanessa, who was the daughter of none other than our old friend Agathocles. Sailing to Sicily in 278 BC, Pyrrhus must have felt relieved to exchange the standoff in Italy for the fresh prospects of a new campaign. The Carthaginians, on the other hand, became alarmed when they heard of Pyrrhus's approach. Their ships had been closely monitoring the situation in southern Italy, and they had doubtless received word of the bloody defeats the Romans had suffered at Pyrrhus's hands. In a frantic move to bolster their position, the Carthaginians began to cast around for a new ally. After the Battle of Asculum, the Carthaginians had offered to aid the Romans with a fleet of a hundred and twenty warships under one of their distinguished captains, but the Romans, wary of Carthaginian interference, politely declined the offer. Now, Carthage approached Rome again with offers of alliance, and this time the Romans accepted. The Carthaginians agreed to supply a navy and expeditionary force, while the Romans furnished land troops. Additionally, both sides agreed not to make peace separately with Pyrrhus if he continued to war against the other. The fact that two major powers decided to join together in alliance against what was for all intents and purposes one man shows the extraordinary reputation Pyrrhus had won for himself by this point in his career. So great was Pyrrhus's fame that his mere approach towards Syracuse caused the Carthaginian army to raise the siege and sail back to the western side of the island. Landing triumphantly in Syracuse, Pyrrhus was almost immediately inundated with men, money, and supplies from the surrounding city-states. Soon, he was at the head of an army of 30,000 infantry, and 2,500 cavalry, along with his squadron of elephants. Once again taking up the mantle of a Greek liberator, Pyrrhus marched out against the Carthaginians. He quickly found that the Carthaginian military was of quite a different caliber from that of Rome, and he easily routed their forces and laid siege to the city of Eryx. Here, After vowing games in honor of the Greek demigod Hercules if he captured the city, Pyrrhus personally led the assault over the walls, being the first to climb a ladder and set foot on the battlements. As the fighting raged on the walls, Pyrrhus, leading his Iperotes, beat the defenders back handily. Plutarch describes his exploits. Some he threw down from the walls on each side, others he laid in a heap round him with his sword. Nor did he receive the least wound, but by his very aspect inspired terror in the enemy. After taking the city, Pyrrhus fulfilled his oath by holding games and contests in honor of Hercules. Since Alexander the Great had held similar games after taking Carthage's mother city of Tyre, Pyrrhus likely sought to draw a parallel between himself and his more famous cousin, showing that he was indeed the rightful heir of Alexander. Following this, nearly all of the cities in Sicily went over to Pyrrhus, save the Carthaginian stronghold of Lilibaeum in the west. After a fruitless siege of Lilibaeum, which lasted two months, Pyrrhus turned aside to the city of Messina in the north. Here, a group of rogue mercenaries known as the Mamertines had established themselves as rulers of the city and were terrorizing the surrounding country. When Pyrrhus had first arrived in Sicily, these fierce mercenaries had made an alliance with Carthage to resist the Iperte invasion. In spite of their warlike reputation, Pyrrhus defeated them in open battle and drove them back into their city with great slaughter. Although this may seem like a side story, keep the Mamertines in mind, for in the next episode, we will see how this turbulent people group was directly responsible for the advent of the First Punic War. After beating the Mamertines, Pyrrhus began to conceive more grandiose designs. Almost certainly thinking of Agathocles' invasion of North Africa over 30 years before, he planned to make an overseas attack on Carthage herself. Panicked by this news, the Carthaginians, in a move that surely must have outraged the Romans, offered Pyrrhus a large sum of money and a supply of ships if he would make peace with them. Pyrrhus, upon the instigation of his Sicilian allies, Countered by demanding that Carthage evacuate all of Sicily and make the Libyan Sea the border with Syracuse. When Carthage predictably refused, Pyrrhus gleefully resumed his scheme for invasion. However, as was often the case with him, Pyrrhus, though a brilliant soldier, proved to be a mediocre statesman. Crowning himself king of Sicily, Pyrrhus immediately alienated his allies by making haughty demands for them to supply him with ships and sailors for his upcoming campaign. His behavior became so high-handed that soon the Syracusans and others who had recently welcomed the Iperote king were clamoring for him to depart. The cities in the west of Sicily returned their allegiance to Carthage, while many in the east turned to the Mamertines for protection. When letters arrived from the Tarentines and Samnites, begging Pyrrhus to return to aid them against the relentless Roman advance, Pyrrhus, just as he had done in Italy, seized the new opportunity to make a dignified retreat. After three years of campaigning in Sicily, he set sail for Tarentum. Along the way, Pyrrhus and his men were ambushed by the Mamertines, who succeeded in wounding the Iperote king in the head. When he withdrew a little ways off to tend his wound, one of the Mamertine champions, emboldened by his retreat, advanced and called out that if Pyrrhus was still alive, he should come and face the man in single combat. Enraged by this challenge, Pyrrhus impetuously broke loose from his guards and rushed to meet his opponent. Emerging from the ranks smeared with blood, and, in the words of Plutarch, terrible to look upon, Pyrrhus struck the man such a blow with his sharp sword that he cut the challenger into two pieces. Discouraged by this sight, the Mamertines took to their heels, and Pyrrhus crossed the Tarentum without further incident. Here, however, his fortunes failed him. The Romans had crushed his Italian allies with the help of Carthaginian logistical support. At one point, a squadron of Carthaginian vessels transported a detachment of Roman troops to Regium, where they burned a stockpile of wood which Pyrrhus had intended to use to build ships. Pyrrhus fought one last battle against the Romans at Benevitum. A botched night attack led him into a disadvantageous position, and though his elephants for a while held the enemy back, Roman reinforcements forced the beasts to retire in confusion. Terrified by the tumult, the war elephants turned and began to stampede back through their own men, trampling the Iparotes and throwing the whole army into chaos. Having lost numerous men and nearly all of his elephants in the battle, Pyrrhus retreated to Tarentum. Seeing the writing on the wall, a short time later, he left Italy forever, leaving his lieutenant Mylon in command of Tarentum before sailing home. Two years later, in 272 BC, Pyrrhus would be found fighting none other than the legendary Spartans. In an effort to establish his friend, the exiled Spartan king Cleonymus, back on his throne. True to form, soon after his return to Epirus, Pyrrhus had engaged in several different wars at once. First, attacking the kingdom of Macedonia, routing their army, and capturing the capital of Pella, before agreeing to invade the Peloponnese to attack Sparta. After a brutal siege, Pyrrhus was unexpectedly defeated by the Spartans and forced to retreat. Along the way, he was invited to intervene in a civil dispute in the city-state of Argos. However, upon entering the city gate, Pyrrhus found the place filled with hostile Spartan, Macedonian, and Argive troops. Brutal street fighting broke out, and in his typical reckless fashion, Pyrrhus fought where the melee was fiercest. Wounded by a thrust from a spear, Pyrrhus turned ferociously on the young Argive soldier who had injured him. While they fought, the young man's elderly mother, seeing the struggle and fearing for her son's life, picked up a roof tile with both hands and threw it at the Iperog king from her rooftop above. As if guided by fate, the tile struck Pyrrhus on the back of the neck below his helmet, paralyzing him. Falling in the midst of the crowd, Pyrrhus remained unrecognized until a Macedonian soldier who had served with him at the Battle of Ipsus stumbled upon him. The man drew his sword to finish the Iperot king off, but Pyrrhus gave him such a fierce look that the man was confounded with terror and stood frozen for a long time. However, in the end, the soldier killed Pyrrhus as he lay paralyzed in the gutter, cutting off his head and bringing it to the Macedonian king. So ended Pyrrhus of Epirus, the would-be western Alexander. As we have seen, he was by no means an undefeated general, and oftentimes he was a less-than-stellar statesman he exhibited a peculiar form of ancient ADD, engaging in numerous wars without necessarily weighing the full cost, abandoning one enterprise as soon as another, more favorable one, presented itself. One of his contemporaries likened him to a brilliant dice player who could win great gains by skillful throws, but knew not how to use them properly. By the end of his life, nothing remained of his magnificent achievements. Though at one point he threatened to carve out an empire which would include all of Greece, Sicily, and Lower Italy, his death marked the end of Ipirus as a player on the world stage. Incidentally, Pyrrhus also represented the last chance the Western Greeks had to resist the rising power of Rome and Carthage. Yet despite the fact that Pyrrhus is often forgotten today, in antiquity he enjoyed a magnificent reputation as one of the greatest generals of all time. He wrote several military treatises, which received widespread acclaim and which even influenced Hannibal Barca. Indeed, when asked who he thought was the greatest general, Hannibal placed Pyrrhus second, only behind Alexander the Great his reckless courage, his personal charisma, his heroic efforts against a powerful and relentless foe, and his habitual good humor, all made Pyrrhus widely admired, both among his contemporaries and his immediate posterity. At different intervals he was king of Epirus, Macedonia, and Sicily, and he always seemed to bounce back, even after several bouts of being deposed and restored to his throne even today though we may view his achievements as transient there is something moving about studying how this one hellenistic adventurer king ruler of a small overlooked corner of the greek world managed to strike fear into both the romans and carthaginians two world empires who dwarfed all the resources he could ever hope to bring to bear against them If for nothing else, Pyrrhus deserves to be remembered for his personal courage and bravado in the face of these overwhelming odds, bearing up under his misfortunes with a nerve and resilience that would do credit to any hero, either before or since. In the wake of the Pyrrhic War, Carthage and Rome found that they had become new neighbors thanks to Pyrrhus' campaigns in Sicily and Italy. Carthage would soon be forced to deal with the Mamertine threat in eastern Sicily, while the Romans, after finally taking Tarentum in 272 BC, quickly consolidated their hold of southern Italy. Now, only a short stretch of water in the Strait of Messina separated these two behemoth empires. Next time, we will see how Carthage and Rome were propelled by the aftermath of the Pyrrhic War into the longest continuous conflict antiquity would ever see. Until then, take care and read more history.